This Dharma talk by John Sutherland with Sarah Bender, Ghosts into Ancestors 2, was given at Springs Mountain Sangha in Colorado Springs, Colorado, on September 27, 2008. Tonight we're going to pick up some of the threads from the week so far and talk a little bit about where we might be now and also some, some suggestions about where we might go in the future. Um, the first thread I wanted to, to pick up was about stories. Uh, we tend to sort of use a shorthand where we say stories are bad, you know, stories are things we ought to get rid of. And it's actually not quite that simple, so I wanted to give a brief but slightly subtler view of stories. And that is that when you find a good story that really helps you understand something, particularly something that's been difficult or long-standing in your life, it's a great thing. It's really exhilarating to find a good story. So as long as a story is exhilarating like that, is surprising, is something that um, makes you see things differently, that's great and something that can really be worked with. What tends to happen to stories if they outlive that usefulness is that first they sort of get comfy, you know, that comfy (laughs) stage of a story, like, I'm like this because that was like that, you know. And, um, well, that kind of solves everything, doesn't it? <laughs> because I don't have to really do much more because there's, there's the explanation fully formed. Uh, and then they can go even a step further, a step beyond that, where they really rigidify. And that's where we really start getting into trouble, when the stories rigidify and they become laws of the universe. I am like this because that is like that, or that was like that, more likely. Um, And there's just no movement anymore. The story has stopped. So the thing to look for is the place where the story stops. Because the one thing we know, you know, Buddhism 101, is that everything is changing all the time. And so if a story stops, something's off. Something's wrong. And maybe it's necessary to find a new and uh, exhilarating story to get to jumpstart the one that's gone uh, rigid. And within that, there's the second thing I want to really spend some time talking about tonight, which is learning to read the time, learning to see what time it is and what time it isn't, and responding to what we can come to see and understand about what time it is. Um... And let me also say about, about the story thing is that something to remember is that there is, a, there is a version of you that is much bigger and much more subtle than any story. So look for that version of yourself and don't substitute a smaller and less subtle story for it. So listening to the time, paying attention to the time. Uh, the question was coming up about w- whether ghosts are bad and ancestors are good and ghosts are things we ought to get rid of. And we don't even really have to go that far. That's something extra. To make them bad is, is something extra. If we listen to the time, then we will know, as Sarah was saying last night, sometimes it's time to carry the ghost for a while. That's the nature of the time. 
Sometimes it's time to put the ghost down. Sometimes it's time to transform the ghost into an ancestor. And that's what we have to be alert to. We have to pay attention to. Um, Sometimes it's time to mourn, and ghosts are often uh, connected with grieving and mourning. And sometimes, as we'll talk about in a minute, it's time to send the mourners home. It's time to stop. So there isn't one approach that's always right. This isn't a sort of template you can throw down on any situation. It's really a way of developing the muscles and the capacities to discern the time and to work with the time, not to impose some predetermined idea on any time at all. In the old Chinese traditional system that we've been working with on turning ghosts into ancestors, the belief was that ghosts weren't inherently bad or evil. They were things that had lasted beyond their time. And because they had lasted beyond their time, they were starting to rot. And because they were rotting, they were sending up these miasmas, these vapors of goo, (laughs) that would um, confuse our heart minds and sometimes even create mind demons. So right away you can see that we're not talking about an evil foe that must be vanquished or you know a, a lesser thing that has to be disposed of. We're talking about something that's gone from a state of ripeness into a state of, of, of rottedness. <laughs> and um, to use Stephen Karcher's phrase, it's time to, uh, to throw it into the karmic recycle bin. <laughs> so again, there isn't a sense of, you know, destroying it, eradicating it, pulverizing it like our political system. Um, It's more a sense of toss it in the karmic recycle bin, let something else happen with it. Uh, if, If you don't, if you don't catch something that's gone rotten and the the ghost persists, then you have a circumstance like this. This is one of the old Chinese stories that I really love. There was a, a king of a small kingdom called uh, um, King Wu, and his father, King Wen, had died, and he was in mourning for his father, and the custom was that he would be in the mourning hut for three years, which is kind of amazing. But while he was in the mourning hut during those three years, he received a great sign, which was a solar eclipse, that this was the moment he'd been waiting for to go and overthrow the horrible Shang tyrant. Of course, the previous <laughs> dynasty is always the horrible tyrant that you're overthrowing, and incidentally install himself in place. But he got, he got the sign, the eclipse came, that he, he should go do that. He should set the armies in motion and do this. So now he had this horrible dilemma. Did he stay in the morning hut? Did he disobey all the rules and leave the morning hut early and go off and, and um, fight against the evil Shang? So he did some divination. They said, go. So he went. But the problem was that his father, um, King Wen, hadn't been made into an ancestor yet. And how that was symbolized was that there were ancestor tablets that were created. And when you were going about a big enterprise like overthrowing the previous dynasty, you would take the ancestor tablets of your father with you to, to, as a kind of blessing on the mission. 
but they didn't have ancestor tablets yet, and so he had to take the corpse. So King Wu went into battle with the corpse of his father on the litter following the end. So this is a great image, isn't it? How often do we go off on the great enterprise with the corpse on a litter, dragging it behind us? How much simpler to to turn the corpse into an ancestor, and then we can just take the tablets. Not so difficult. Um... And this, this reminds me a lot of, so, someone mentioned um, the Psyche story that we worked with several years ago. W- one of the things that happens to Psyche when she goes underground is she's faced with this horrible task of going underground and, and getting a box of beauty from the queen of the underworld. And she's really in despair about being able to complete this. And a friendly tower gives her some great advice for how to navigate the underworld. And someday we'll do that again because it's such perfect advice. But one of the four things that the tower tells her is, when you're on the ferry crossing the river Styx, there are corpses that will float by on the river and they will reach out their hands to you and they will implore you to pull them into the boat. You must not do this. You must not rescue what is already dead even if it beseeches you to. So you've got pretty much the same message there. If it's dead, let it go. Let the river take it. Don't try to save it. That will only cause problems. Um, So one of the things we might think about is This idea of going into the morning hut, we talked about it the other night, that you go into the morning hut as someone's child, the child of the dead person, and a corpse, and you come out as an adult with an ancestor. We can think of that really as a kind of metaphor for those moments in meditation when we decide to go through something not around it or away from it or over it, but right through it. If we're willing to spend the time and do the work in the morning hut, a genuine transformation can occur. And that's not just with, with ghosts and ancestors. That's really any time in our meditation when something arises and we choose to go with it and through it. Um, So I wanted to talk a little bit about then what happens. What does this make possible from this traditional Chinese perspective and then also from the perspective of our own way? In the traditional Chinese perspective, the first movement that we're engaging in in a sort of large sense is one of emptying the heart. And that is described as Make a sacrifice for the repose of the dead. This is that invitation to the dead to lie down and to rest. You know, it's time for you to lie down and to rest. So make a sacrifice for the repose of the dead. Let the mourners go home. There comes a time when it's time to stop mourning the corpse, whatever that corpse is. Let the mourners go home. If you remember from the story of Psyche, 
another bit of advice she got was when you get to the palace of the queen of the underworld, to Persephone's palace, don't sit on Persephone's throne. (laughs) Don't become the queen of the underworld yourself. You're there to get something, to get the box of beauty, but to bring it back out under in the beautiful line of the of the text under the ordinary constellations of the sky. So don't take that throne. Let the mourners go home. There's a time to stop. Uh, and the advice goes on, if strangers come, do not feast them. So again, we have the same advice as to Psyche. There are times when we don't help. There are times when we don't um, take whatever comes, but we enter the morning hut and do the work that we need to do there before again coming out and meeting with others. If we do that, if we empty the heart in that way, empty the heart of the sorrow that is connected with the ghost, then a wave of blessing will fill it instead. Um, there's an old Chinese saying that if you keep a green bough in your heart, a bird, a singing bird will alight there. So when we let go of the ghost and allow the ancestor, the ancestor brings with it a wave of blessing that's like a, a singing bird alighting in our heart. We've made room for that. We've allowed for the possibility of the transformation from ghost to ancestor. And when we do that, the old Chinese thought, something opens into our deep selves, into what we might call the deep psyche or the unconscious, the parts of ourselves not as known to us every day um, as some others. And this is the world of what the Chinese called the pigs and fishes, the riches of the underworld the things that are down there, the mysterious pigs and fishes that can, um, can bring us great things. If we do this work, they promise, we will develop a great trust in the processes of life. That seems tremendously important, and that is very much my experience, that if we're willing to do the work of transformation that's necessary, if we're willing to empty our hearts, to let the blessings in, to connect with the realm of pigs and fishes underneath everything, um, then, then really you can have a growing faith in the processes of life, in how things are. Things stop feeling, in Stephen Karcher's wonderful formulation, so random. So random. That there seems to be something that we can, there's a kind of Tao, there's a flow of things that we can discover and learn about and enter. And when we can do that, when we develop this fundamental trust, which we have talked about as trusting your life, then we can really come from a strong place in helping others. We can stand someplace strong, which is uh, an image that Sarah's been using, and be helpful because of that fundamental trust. We're not in a kind of primary conflict 
this life. Okay, so that's sort of coming up to where we are now. And I wanted to talk about the last steps in this process. We've uh, identified the ghost. We've explored what our goo is in relationship to the ghost. We've considered what the ancestor might be like without the goo. So the last steps. Who is the ancestor now? When you remove your own stories and feelings and projections on the ghost, what is left? And is that thing that is left, that being who is left, is that the ancestor? If you can get a good sense of who that ancestor is, what it is like, then the next question is, what can I ask of this ancestor? And what can I offer it? So it becomes an exchange. It becomes a conversation. What can I ask? What can I expect from the ancestor? And what can I offer the ancestor in turn? We both send and receive in that relationship. And I think of um, Jian Yuan in the koan from last night saying, this is just what I need to strengthen me. That sense of having a relationship with an ancestor or with many ancestors from whom you can receive and to whom you can joyfully give. The next step, once we have identified the ancestor and kind of seen what we might give and receive, is um, something that we'll do tomorrow in the ceremony. I mentioned that when ghosts became ancestors, they were represented by an ancestor, ta- a spirit tablet. And there, there were just wooden things about this tall that sat on the altar with the name of the ancestor and maybe some dates and a saying or something like that. And um, we'll be making those tomorrow night for our ancestor, those of you who want to. So um, there is this transformation from ghost to ancestor and the ancestor is represented by the spirit tablet it's not like it lives in the spirit tablet or anything like that it's just represented in the same way that it might be today by a photograph on our dressing table or an altar that we have Um, and one of the things that I I love about the way that Chinese relate to the ancestor tablets is how much um, part of life they are they're they're in your home. They're the, the two most recent generations are on an altar that's visible all the time. Um, it might be, your say, your great-grandparents and your grandparents. And then when your parents die, your parents kick your great-grandparents <laughs> off the altar, and they go into the ancestor cupboard. And so next to, next to the altar is this big cupboard with all, you know, all the generations of the ancestor tablets there. And once a year, they get brought out and dusted off and put on the altar. And, um, and once a year, the, the, um, the ancestors who are still on the altar are given a feast. And so if, if you, you would cook you know, grandma's favorite foods or the stuff that dad really loved, and you would sit the tablets at the table and offer it to, to them, and then the whole family would eat it. 
Corned beef hash. (laughs) 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 Ceremonially. (laughs) Pass it by your mouth. (laughs) But there was a sense of the ordinariness of it, you know, that, that it was an ongoing part of life. And there's something about the ancestor cupboard that really touches me, the sense that, you know, they go in and (laughs) there they are. And then you will them to the eldest child, (laughs) however that works. Um, So so the next step is to begin to think about the ancestor tablets that you can make tomorrow if, if you want and what you want that to be like and maybe what you'll do with it once you've got it at home. And maybe it will be the first of many. And then the last next step I wanted to suggest, which is also something to really take home with you, is the thought that, you know, we are ghosts and ancestors in the making. Mm -hmm. So how are you doing? (laughs) What kind of ghost will you leave? What kind of ancestor might you become? That's something we can start thinking about now. That's something we can start working with and doing something about now. You are an ancestor in training. (laughs) What does that ask of us? What would we want to give that if we thought that way? Um, And I'll just close with a, a few thoughts from the perspective of our way. I've given the traditional Chinese perspective. And the first thing about that is is how moved I've been to talk with so many of you who are working with this material in very different ways. Everyone has their own way of doing it. And some of you are working with dead relatives and, and um, some of you are working with parts of yourself that got lost somewhere along the way that you're looking to um, reconnect with. And that seems very important, that, again, we're not imposing a template on something, but we're making an inquiry, and we're noticing what response we get to the inquiry and working with that rather than trying to impose something on it. And if we think about the possibility of a deep faith in the processes of life, of the ability to trust our lives. It seems to me that essential to that is a growing conviction that as we move through the world, there is nothing we need to defend or protect, and there is nothing we need to assert. That doesn't mean that we just go about sort of, you know, open to whatever happens or that we don't ever do anything but it means that we, we lose in some ways the need to have a protective stance all the time we, knew, we lose the need to convince to make an argument to make sure that we're understood it's just not as important if we trust life In the koan we talked about last night, it said that Prince Nada realized his original body, which is something like the body that needs no defense and no assertion, but simply is. And um, for those of you 
who work with koans with me, you might think when you think of the original body of Wei Neng's original face and the question, what is your original face? And when Ming realized his original face, Wei Neng said to him, when you know that, when you know your original face or your original body, nothing is secret anymore. Nothing is hidden. All you have to do is check inside and you will see it for yourself. That doesn't mean that everything is immediately clear and that we understand everything completely. It's not like that. It's not that simple. But there is something that happens. There is a possibility of seeing through the secret, of coming into relationship with things that seem completely mysterious. Another one of the old Chinese teachers, Zhao Zhao, when speaking of this, said, it's as if you see a word and you don't understand the meaning yet, but you recognize the handwriting. Mm -hmm. So any encounter we have, any meeting we have with someone else, any time we enter into a new situation, we don't know the meaning yet. We can't because we just got there. But we recognize the handwriting. We recognize the kinship we have with everyone and everything else. We recognize that we are at home in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. The handwriting is familiar. And when that is true, it becomes a delight, a joy to find out, to discover through our own experience what the meaning of the word is. In another koan, someone talks about stepping off the top of a hundred-foot pole. And it says that when you do, when you step off the top of a hundred-foot pole, that original body will become apparent in every direction, in all the worlds. And one of the reasons that we do this work with ghosts and ancestors is to make it really clear that this movement toward our original faces, our original bodies, isn't an event that occurs just within our own psyches or, or our own heart-minds, that it happens in all the realms. It happens in those interior landscapes, but it happens in the exterior landscape of the world as well, and not just the visible one, the invisible ones as well, the worlds of our ancestors the worlds of what has been and has passed, the worlds that we can't see. In all of those worlds, we can begin to walk without the need for so much protection, without the need to assert so much, but with a fundamental sense of trust in the processes of life in all those dimensions, in all those realms. So part of what this work with ghosts and ancestors is about is building the confidence that we can do that. We can know, we can inhabit our original bodies. And those bodies can walk more and more freely in whatever realms we're walking in. So, 
I will leave it there and hand it to Sarah. Last, last bit of our of our precepts, where um, Bodhidharma says your presentation of the actual body mm-hmm. is the harbor and the weir. Yeah. This is the most important thing in the world, yeah. and we don't have to understand it. It has its takes its power from the ocean of essential nature. We can't accept it unless it We, yeah. With respect and gratitude, yeah. Um, Stephen Karcher also says that if someone is to be a diviner, is to, is to be, is to walk among the, the different worlds that we inhabit, um, it's essential for that person to have uh, an altar, to have a portable altar with inst- having installed ancestors. And it, that seems to me so much to speak to this, that, that that's an expression of your willingness to be supported by um, what you can't, the unseen, to be supported by and helped by what went before, and then to, to, to carry that towards what is to come. When Joan gave me a preview so that we would not just sort of both be saying the same thing, which it looked like we might do, um, I said, well, that seems pretty full and complete. (laughs) (laughs) So, and I I, uh, hope not to, yeah, um, clutter the field. So I thought, but there were some things that I thought I would come at from a little bit different angle. Um, So first of all, nothing and no one is a ghost or an ancestor. (laughs) So by that I mean that each thing just is as it is, right? Watch, carpet, us, (laughs) wall. (laughs) And our thoughts are what they are. And uh, the memory of our loved ones and our unloved ones <laughs> is what it is. A helicopter overhead, just that noise, right? And yet, a helicopter overhead, 
can mean, ah, somebody's watching to keep us safe, or it can mean somebody's about to bomb us. A door slamming can mean, oh, the wind, right? Or it can mean, my spouse is really pissed off. (laughs) Yeah? Someone's size can mean, ah, finally get to relax, you know, and uh, smoke a pipe. Or can mean, oh, man, I'm so sick of you doing that, right? So we are all the time ghosting and ancestoring. So there aren't any ghosts and ancestors in one way. And so that's not, I hope you see, not to contradict this work that we're doing, but to say from another perspective, it's, it's our minds. It is the, the mind, so right? So you're saying it's process and not things? I'm saying, yeah, I'm saying nothing just stays still. That things are much more dynamic than that. Yeah, and um, there's an, if you look at the very first page of the Dhammapada, which I don't do very often, but, <laughs> but which I handed out to my cadets <laughs> this summer um, as a pocketbook, um, there's this wonderful quote, I thought, um, he abused me, mistreated me, defeated me, robbed me. Harboring such thoughts keeps hatred alive. It's just a really simple statement, right? Maybe true, right, that he abused me, mistreated me, defeated me, robbed me, but there's no ghost in that, right? Could be that's the fact, yeah? But harboring such thoughts, and that gets back to what Joan was saying about when it's time is passed, right? It's done already, but holding it, it starts to fester. So that's not different than the, you know, one of the fundamental teachings of the importance of what our mind does with the stuff that that happens. So our mind is ghosting and ancestoring most of the time. This just rises. It just is, yeah? So If you're over-identified with those thoughts, if you think they have to be real, if if you think they are you, you're going to see them as real and solid, and you will carry them as real and solid. And they can clog things up. If, on the other hand, you're completely mistrustful of your mind, and think it's deficient. And only some other much more enlightened mind could deal with your life. Then you're tempted to hate the ghosting and lust after the ancestoring, right? The ghosting is all, mm, please, no more of that. You know, let me only have ancestors <laughs> around me. Let me be surrounded by only loving ancestors. <laughs> no ghosts need apply. <laughs> so one of the beauties of our meditation, I think, is that it lets us get really good and familiar with mind. 
with the activity of mind, with the rising and falling within the spaciousness of our mind. This very mind is the Buddha. Hmm. And it makes ghosts? Okay, so this very mind is the Buddha, and it makes ghosts. Hmm, okay. So if neither response is wrong, if neither the ghosting nor the ancestoring is wrong, then what? That one moment you might be haunted. You might wake up in the morning with this fundamental kind of shakiness inside. What will become of me? What will become of me? Am I going to be a little old bad lady? You know, what will become of me? You know, what if I get really sick and I have no health insurance? You know, all of those things that can rise up first thing in the morning sometimes to greet you. So, the feeling is being crowded then, yeah? It feels like a kind of crowding and blocking in. And and it could be by the memory of our past pain or the anticipation of more pain. The hard lessons and the closing doors. And the, the stance is kind of, you know, either crouched with sword in hand or... Um, you know, racing around and shooting randomly in all directions, you know. (laughs) Um, If your mind is not wrong, then what is this for? And in our meditation, in our practice, on the cushions and in our daily practice, I think one move that we can make is to just let ourselves soften to it. To just soften to it. Working with what's after me, not with what's after me, what's out to get me, what do I have to do about it, but with what am I, what wants defending? What am I afraid of losing? And trusting that, that that there is something there that wants to be wants to release. That in other words it's not static, but a movement of the mind, a movement of the heart mind. Can we trust the movement of our heart mind and inquire what is moving here under under the layers of my awareness? Another moment, your mind might be ancestral, gratefully receiving what's, what's offered. What if you don't make that privileged either? Because once that is privileged, you turn it into a ghost, don't you? like the stories that Joan started out talking about. That great story that enlivens everything, right? That's just vivid and bright and puts everything into a new perspective. 
that's sort of what I mean by ancestoring, right? That's receiving um, a, a wisdom that comes sometimes unexpected. But if we hold on to it and try to hoard it in some way, we're, we're ghosting it. That very thing that was an ancestor a minute ago. Does that make sense? So, one thing that helps with that, I think, is that is to remember that it's not about you. That it's not that 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 gift, that gift that arrives, so bright and lively, is for responding with. It's is it is to hand on. It is to to give. What can I offer here? Keeps it moving. So then, rather than waking up asking, at that moment, asking, what will become of me? You know, in that stance, you're on your feet asking, what will come of me? What will become of me. And that's that last move that Joan was talking about. What kind of ghost or ancestor am I? Yeah? That's walking forward on your two feet rather than crouching, defended, or spraying bullets. So, in this regard, I was reminded of the con that says sickness and medicine correspond. Yeah, some of us have talked about that. The whole world is medicine. What then is the self? We could say ghosts and ancestors correspond. The whole world is ancestors. What then is the self? What are you? I think that when we practice that move of opening ourselves to the activity of ghosting and ancestoring, of noticing what rises, what do we feel like defending against, of noticing what comes through, what, are, what is it that we offer at this moment, then as we walk back and forth through that doorway, as we... Um, allow the coming and going of those different activities of the mind we develop that kind of trust that Joan was talking about trust in mind is not unlike trust of life right because what else what other location of life do you have your response to life your experience of life is mind yeah So then, with that comes a freedom. We get freer and freer to notice those moments when there is no ghosting or ancestoring going on. When we just (coughs) simply rest in what is. And there's sometimes, like in a retreat like this, where we're working so hard, you know, at trying to, trying to, 
make that transformation, trying to ease it, trying to see what it is, trying to figure out what's a ghost, what's an ancestor, you know? It's really helpful to notice those moments when nothing is required at all, when we can simply rest in what is. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.